The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies. It cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. These words spoken by Gordon Gekko in the 1987 film Wall Street embody what I think many have come to expect of the sin of greed in our culture. That greed has created unparalleled prosperity for our nation, and that perhaps not all greed is bad. Sure, there are times when greed is evil. We can think of those, you know, fat cats in Washington, or we can point to plenty of corporations who we would label as greedy because they prioritize their profits at the expense of their employees. But as we decry these faceless and corrupt spaces, we turn a blind eye to the ways in which greed manifests itself in our lives. It's easy for me to stand up here, as I've done so regularly, and criticize figures like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Right? You know, a little over a year into the pandemic, so this would have been almost a year ago, Forbes magazine found that Musk's net worth had grown by $144 billion over that year. Bezos's grew during that same time frame by about $86 billion. I think Musk has actually overtaken Bezos as the wealthiest individual in our nation. These CEOs, like many others, have pocketed obscene amounts of money while their workers were either laid off or continued to work through the pandemic, but at bare minimum wages. I think most people can look at figures like this and say something doesn't feel good about it. But when we go to these grand examples, it makes us think that that's all that greed is. These significant, unequal distributions of wealth, which is an example of greed. But if that's all that greed is, then I don't need to worry too much about looking inwardly in my own life. Because I'm never going to have, I mean, let's be honest, I'm never going to have a fraction of the wealth that these men have. But what Gordon Gekko's speech gives language to for us is that we often live according to the principles of greed with our lives, our money, our love, and knowledge. But we often call it something else, something a bit more palatable for us. Now, as we continue through this sermon series on the seven deadly sins, my goal has been to reorient our understanding on this antiquated list. That the deadliness of these sins come not in their grand gestures of immorality, but instead the, instead the subversive and saturating ways that these vices have grabbed a hold of our hearts. This morning, as we look at greed, I anticipate the same level of relevancy that the shaping of these vices by Christians centuries before us point to the fact that they still have power to illuminate the darkness in our lives. Whether you would consider yourself rich or poor, all have the potential of being tempted by greed. 
Like all the deadly sins, greed is about the inner heart. What is the place or the priority of my possessions? It deals with attachment to stuff. Right? Do we love our goods just a bit too much, more than is healthy for us? But as usually is the case, what is the most visible are the outward manifestations of greed. For instance, greed most commonly manifests itself through a tendency to excessively acquire or to hold on with a death grip to those possessions and never let go. Maybe the most stereotypical way that you can see this is in like a you know, home that you would see in like a, the, the A&E show Hoarders, right? Piles and piles of stuff that aren't necessary for life but are there and there is unwillingness to let go of them. But again, that's, that's an extreme example. I don't want us to be lulled into a false sense of security that greed cannot be found in our home as well. I said a moment ago, greed at its core is about an unhealthy attachment or relationship with possessions. Maybe instead of tangible possessions, we could think about it as an unhealthy attachment to money, to wealth. If you want to open your Bibles... I didn't give you a whole lot of Bible last week, so I'm going to look at a passage from Luke. This is Luke 12. And I, I want to use this as a case study that the Scriptures provide that gives us a window into this discussion about greed. It unveils, it reveals some things to us about the nature of greed. This is a cautionary tale from Jesus. So I'm going to read. Hopefully you've had a chance to find it. Luke 12, 16 to 21. And he, Jesus, told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, we cannot miss the first verse here. I think it sets the stage for the whole parable. Check out verse 16. The land of this man produced plentifully. He attained agricultural prosperity, wealth. As we saw, the story ends tragically, but right here, there is nothing negative stated about his prosperity. There's something that older culture, cultures, cultures that are older than us, better understood, is that everything that we have comes from the Lord. If you lived in a, an agrarian society, right, where, where you were a farmer or you were a shepherd, you were totally dependent upon the movement of God. You couldn't control the rain, you couldn't control the heat, you couldn't control the you know, insect uh, swarm that was coming to damage your crops all of the external factors that would make or break your harvest. And so in our story, 
It is the Lord who is blessing the man with a bountiful harvest. It is not bad for him to be prosperous. It's not evil to be rich. So often, uh, 1 Timothy 6.10 is misquoted. Uh, People quote it to say, money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So again, money is not the problem. It is our attachment to it. If the story stopped after verse 16, I don't think that the, the character of our story has ventured into greed. It's not greedy for him just to, to make money. Money or possessions are not inherently evil. Greed instead is about the unhealthy attachment to possessions. If it's not bad to have stuff, we need to ask ourselves, do we possess our possessions or do they possess us? Right, think about the character, Ebenezer Scrooge, in the, in the classic Dickens tale, uh, A Christmas Carol. Here we see this outward manifestation of greed that he had acquired quite a bit of wealth for himself. But he didn't stop there. He was stingy. He was tight-fisted with it. Right, he wouldn't even give, I, I, I don't know, I, I know the story. It's been years since I read it. Most of my recollection of the story is through uh, The Muppet's Christmas Carol. It's the best Christmas carol that's out there. We watch it just about every Christmas. Right? And I think, I, I think of uh, uh, Rizzo, right? Rizzo's the rat, you know, wanting just that extra lump of coal and Ebenezer shutting him down. Michael Caine did a great job there, right? He, Scrooge wouldn't even let his employees work in comfort. He was willing to use people to serve his love of money instead of the other way around where his money would serve the benefit of those around him, the people around him, or the puppets around him in the case. Now, we might hope that we are more generous than Scrooge, but man, I don't know, I don't know about the world that we live in, because a a byproduct of greed is that we make everything about usability, how useful is something, or how profitable is something. People are just cogs in the machine with the purpose of this opulent lifestyle. We monetize everything. Money makes the world grow round. We hear quotes like, money can't buy happiness. And we we might know that that's not the case, but we sure try our hardest to live as if it were. It is so easy for us to put our trust in wealth for our sense of satisfaction, our significance, our security. But in so doing, it undercuts. When we put our, our hope in money, it undercuts our trust in God as our provider. When we trust in wealth, it's so easy to fall prey to a, you know, like a do-it-yourself model to attain happiness. where We can control our own destinies. This is what we see happen in our story in Luke 12. This guy rakes in the harvest and he wants to stockpile his crops. So he plans to tear down his barns and build newer, bigger, better barns to store this grain. Right? Greed never says enough. John, John Rockefeller, uh, oil, gas tycoon, largely considered potentially the, the wealthiest, you know, kind of uh, based upon adjusting for inflation and whatnot. Some consider him the wealthiest American ever to have lived. But he, he was asked the question, how much money is enough? And his response, I know some of you heard this before, just a little more. Just a little more. If Rockefeller was clamoring for just a little bit more, 
What hope do the rest of us who are not millionaires or billionaires have? If I could just get that $5,000 a year raise, if I could just get a little bit more square footage in my house, I know I just got the iPhone 12, but if I could just get the iPhone 13, then I would be satisfied. But there's never enough. Our goods can't deliver indefinitely. You get the iPhone 13, but you know what? You know the iPhone 14's coming out pretty soon. You buy a bigger home. But the truth is, we fill the spaces we have. Even with an extra 500 square feet, you might start to feel a little cramped. You get that $5,000 a year raise, but now Jill wants to start karate class next year. How are you going to pay for it? We need more. The new Air Jordans. You know, the new refrigerator that shows what's inside so you don't have to open the door. Don't get me started with the countless requests that I get for Robux from my kids over and over again. It's just never enough. Gone like that. There's always going to be something bigger, something better, something faster that we desire. I mean, this is the purpose of the marketing industry. Their whole job is to make us feel that our life is unhappy and meaningless unless we purchase their product, whatever good they're hawking. If there are spaces in your life that you can identify where you struggle to say enough, maybe you've headed down that path towards greed. Again, the the objects that we want are not the problem in and of themselves. It's our desire or our attachment to them. But greed also manifests itself in a fearful view of the future. If you look at verse 19, the, the guy in our story, he says it in the positive. He wants to use his wealth to coast for the remainder of his days. But more commonly, we view this, at least I know I view this, in the negative. Right? There is a hoarding because I am fearful of what the future will hold. And so we store up and we store up to verify that we will have enough of what we need for tomorrow. We saw this very clearly, I guess two years ago now, in the great toilet paper shortage of 2020, right? Because there was uncertainty arising with the pandemic. Folks responded out of fear and out of self-interest to just buy up all the toilet paper and hoard it, right? You know there's got to be people who still have pantries and spare rooms that is packed with just floor-to-ceiling toilet paper. Because it's like, I don't know if I'm going to have this. I need it. This is the type of greed that undercuts our trust in God. We say we follow God, but we're living like functional atheists. We give God lip service. But we feel that if we don't take care of ourselves, no one will. So instead of heeding the words of Jesus to model model the behavior of the sparrow and the lilies, to not fret about what we're going to eat and what what to wear, instead, we load up our Roth IRAs to make sure that we have enough when we want to stop working. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong to plan for retirement. It is fiscally responsible to have long-term preparations with our funds. But what place does fear play into your retirement strategy? Fear that you're not going to have enough. 
I know that's something that I struggle with regularly. You know, when we've talked to financial planners and they tell us what we should be saving, I'm like, well, boy, don't know that we can do that right now. Are we going to have enough? Am I trusting in the market? Am I trusting in the stock market to, to provide for my retirement? Or am I doing my best to manage my funds responsibly, but ultimately I'm banking on the provision of God? Planning for retirement is not a bad thing, but I hope that you can see that if we are comfortable with our portfolio, it's easy for, get, for us to forget about God's need to provide for us. Aquinas said, Thomas Aquinas said that material wealth provides the illusion that we are self-sufficient and it creates an incentive for us to deny God. He wrote, I don't know, I think he's 13th century. I mean, if I can feed myself, and if I know exactly where every meal is coming from in the next year, then the Lord's Prayer kind of becomes empty words, where I'm praying for God to provide daily bread for me. Proverbs 30 has some really wise words of balance in our pursuit of wealth. This is Proverbs 30, 7 to 9. It says this, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. The first is remove far from me falsehood and lying. But I want to hone into the second one. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Like, What good is he? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. May the Lord provide the material possessions, the material resources that we need so that we are not drawn to steal, but not so much that we forget our dependence upon God. Right? The constant pursuit of more is fleeting. It doesn't deliver the promises, the happiness it promises to us. Right? In the words of, of poet Biggie, smalls, mo' money, mo' problems, right? The more wealth or possessions that we attain, the greater the investment it takes to maintain it. And you become more susceptible to, to a loss through that that might come. Uh, there's a guy named Bothius. He was a Roman philosopher in the 6th century. And he was a person of high influence. He was uh, like an officer, uh, a, a consul, I think is what he was in the Roman Empire. Uh, for a time, until he suffered a tragedy, he was kind of cast to the sides of society and he lost all of his earthly possessions. And he wrote that there was a correlation in that the more money and stuff that he possessed, the more money and time and energy he needed to invest to protect and care for it. Right? That money and possessions would not satisfy him in the end. Now, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, as we're looking at the deadly sins, or some, some call them the capital vices, each of them has a corresponding virtue. In the case of greed, the virtue is generosity. Now, the, the root word, the Latin root word for generosity comes from a word called liberality, where we get our word liberty from, literally freedom. The freedom from attachment to wealth and all that money can buy. Freedom from control by our possessions. So here, let's, uh, here's kind of another one of these 
did this with anger, right? You know, complacency. Apathy was on one side and wrath was on the other. You know, a lot of times the virtues have a scale that it's not that the virtue is just the opposite, but that the virtue is kind of that sweet spot in the middle. And either side of the virtue kind of falls into sin or vice. And so here, if we have two opposite errors, on one side you care too much about possessions, greed, which we've looked at extensively, but I want to just take a moment and look at the other side, which is carelessness. It's this model that we don't take into consideration or the necessary care for our possessions in line with a call to be stewards of them. I wrote the word prodigality. I probably said that wrong, but that's what the Desert Fathers called it. It's the same type of behavior we see in in Luke 15 with the prodigal son. He wanted the wealth that was due to him, but he didn't value it. He spent it flippantly. He spent it recklessly. Think about the way that we treat other people's possessions. Or better yet, how, how do we treat rental equipment? Typically, we are not exhibiting the same level of care as we might with our possessions. You know, what came to mind while I was thinking about this is, you know, the middle school over there, Dixon. Brand spanking new, millions of dollars invested in it. But there are a lot of students that have already behaved very recklessly towards it. Whether it be taking things out of, uh, there was issues, you know, there's... uh, Soap dispensers were removed by the administration because of this TikTok challenge that was going around of like destroying property. So they tried to be preemptive there. You know, Elizabeth tells me about, right, this is like the first full year that students have been using things. And like, you know, desks are already kind of feeling wobbly or, 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 or broken, right? Walls are already scuffed up because it's not being cared for. That is, that is carelessness. That is, pro- I'm not even going to say that word again because I'm going to mispronounce it. But both of these extremes that we see are at play in our consumerist culture because we over-acquire. And then when we get tired of it, what do we do? We over-trash, cast it aside. It's no good to us anymore. But right in the middle is the virtue of generosity. Aquinas said that the generous show readiness to give with pleasure when and where they ought. Right? Think, if greed is a tight fist on our possessions, generosity loosens that grip and is willing to offer them with open hands. Think back to, to the opening parable from the Scriptures. It was not bad for the man to be prosperous. It was not bad for him to ha- reap in this bountiful harvest. The issue became when he turned it inward, He turned his goods inward to him, saying, mine, 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 instead of outward for the benefit of others. Because Aquinas said the purpose of having stuff is for the sake of serving others. And I I don't know about you, but I know that's not how I usually live. I know it is difficult to be generous with our things, because especially in this present moment, we believe that we are the reason for the things that we possess. We work hard, and so we feel that we've earned it. We want to be the master of our own stuff. No one can tell us what to do with it. But the question is, are we moving towards that open-handedness or enslavement? Does our money, do our possessions work for us or do we work for them? Think about it like the Dead Sea, a uh, sea in the Mediterranean. 
It's appropriately named because nothing can live in it. It is a 35% concentration of salt, and that prohibits aquatic plant life and animal life to live there. Now, the reason that it is so salty and dead is because there are several tributaries that flow into it, but there's nothing that flows out. The primary way for water to escape is to evaporate. And when it evaporates, what does it leave behind? The salt and all the minerals. The Dead Sea, I think, is a tangible example of how too much of a good thing can kill you. Wealth, if left unchecked, will destroy your soul. Because it was never meant to be hoarded. Be prosperous. Make a lot of money so that you can give it away to benefit others. It is fine for wealth to come in, but make sure there are outlets as well for the sake of your soul. Now, as I start to land the plane, start to wrap up here, I'm going to leave you with two disciplines that can aid us in this journey towards generosity. And the first is simplicity. Many of us have too much stuff. One of my goals this year, uh, I've been working on this with my therapist, is lightning. I want to jettison things. Cut things out in my kind of personal life, health, in my profession, not that I'm, I'm not quitting my job, but there are things vocationally, maybe I should say, that I, I need to say no to because I'm doing too much. In my home, trying to get rid of stuff because I am a hoarder, not like the show hoarder, but I, I hold on to stuff because sometime 10 years from now, even though I haven't used it, I might need it, and so it stays in my house, right? In particular, with my home, we are a family of five and a dog living in a 1,240-square-foot house, and there are times that it feels very tight. It feels that we are practically on top of one another. And, you know, this is a, this is a constant conversation that we have of, like, it'd be nice for us to have a bigger house, uh, let the kids all have their own room instead of having to share. But that's just not the situation that God has put us in right now. And I can't help but think that the woman who sold us our house, who lived into it well into her 80s, raised a family of five with three kids in that exact same house. Part of the issue is not that there are too many kids per square foot, but that we've got too many possessions for our small home, far more than they would have had 50 years ago. Right, the discipline of simplicity is becoming in vogue again. Right, Minimalism is, is all the rage. And, and they're not quite the same thing, but the end result is the same. Breaking the control of that stuff that it has over us. Several years ago, Sarah read a book called Seven by Jen Hatmaker. Uh, the subtitle is An Experimental Mutiny Against Excess. It's a potent title. And, and one of the chapters reminded the reader that We all care a whole, I think I've used this example before, but I think it bears repeating, that we all care a whole lot more about how we look than anyone else around us does. And so Sarah wanted to test this theory, and so for the entire week, she wore and washed and wore again the exact same pair of jeans, t-shirt, and fleece to see if I would notice. 
Spoiler alert, I didn't until the very end of the week. I was like, wait a second, I think I've seen this before somewhere. But it illustrated her point perfectly. If her husband, who is around her all the time, is not really tracking what she's wearing, right? I do now, uh, not really. Then the people outside really don't care. We give them too much power and weight over us. So we spend and acquire countless outfits, makeup, shoes, coats, so that we can feel that we are the height of fashion. And again, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be fashionable. But do we really need to have four different winter coats in the closet when really we're only wearing one of them? Can we go through our dressers, our drawers, our toys, our tools, our lawn equipment, purge the things that we don't use? I think one of the minimalist rules of thumb is, you know, if I haven't used it in a year or used it in two years and I can replace it for $20 or less, get rid of it. It's just taking up space. Hopefully we can donate those things and not fill up our landfills. You know, as I, as I worked on this message, one, uh, our game cabinet, I was sitting on our couch and I looked over and our game, like our hutch, which is our game cabinet is there, which is like packed, it's like stuff, board games are falling out of it. Many of them we haven't played in years. In fact, there's one. It's a Marvel version of Munchkin that I still have yet to open. But I hold on to it in the event that, you know, one of these days my kids are going to be old enough that they can actually play this game, and then I'll have it. A focus on simplicity is a reduction in stuff. It means that we are content with less and that we can bless others with our used goods. Or if we stop buying so much, we can bless others with our finances that we've saved from spending less. Simplicity is a direct assault against greed. Instead of hoarding, we live and go with less. And this brings me to my second remedy, the discipline of tithing. Uh, just a few months ago, I was here and I gave an entire sermon on this. And I don't want to rehatch all of that. I try to I try to be very careful to not speak too frequently about giving because I don't, we don't want to be one of those churches that feels like we're shaking the plate as we're passing it, like, I didn't give enough there. But thematically, it fits here, and so I'm going to talk about it again. All right, so the practice of tithing. Typically, uh, giving a percentage, usually 10% of our income to the Lord through donations to churches or giving to other ministry nonprofits. And this discipline is important because it does a few things to us in this process. For starters, it reminds us that our possessions, first and foremost, are not our own, that they belong to God. As I said earlier, we have trouble letting go of things because we feel that we have earned them. When we give out of joy back to the Lord, we change our focus. We start to see that everything we have is not hard-earned, but instead is a gift from God. But secondly, when we give, it breaks that do-it-yourself mantra of prosperity. When we give, it means that we say no to certain things so that we can say yes to God. But that means that we may not have the fanciest car or the latest fashions or get to go on great vacations. By limiting ourselves, it forces us to live below our means, as measured at least by the broader culture, and seek contentment in what the Lord has provided for us. Listen to Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, 
God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When we use our wealth, not for ourselves, but for God and for others, we can live in a way that is countercultural to this rampant greed that we see in our culture, that is built into the economic systems of our country. We can cultivate in ourselves a deeper faith that depends on the provision of God. And I think we can better appreciate the stuff that we already have. And by so doing, these things might be a healing salve to our soul. Because Jesus said that it is with great difficulty that the wealthy would enter the kingdom of God. We live in the most prosperous nation at the most prosperous time that has ever existed. Whether or not we feel wealthy, I think the words of Jesus here point to all of us. He said that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle But thanks be to God that with God, everything is possible. I've got a couple of reflection questions for you this morning, and then I'm going to close in prayer. I've got to find my image here. Okay, so here we go. Here's some questions to think about. Talk about them at your dinner table. What is your picture of a secure and comfortable life where all your needs feel that they are met? And maybe it's important to to classify the difference between needs and wants. So where your needs are met. And so what spending habits reflect that lifestyle? Second, what fears drive your saving and spending? Take inventory of that, where the motivation is. Because again, I said, it's not wrong to save for retirement, but what is our motivation in that process? Lastly, what is the best picture of generosity and freedom from possessions that you have seen? Is there an individual, perhaps, that you've encountered that just really looks like they are living with that uh, um, liberality, right? That freedom from this attachment. And what can you do to cultivate this framework in your life? I'll post those on Facebook tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Help us know that you are enough And if you are enough, then in you we are enough. That we do not need the stuff, the latest technology, the latest fashion, bigger car, whatever it might be. We don't need those things to set that identity, set that worth that we're enough. May we rest in your love for us, God, and and may we rest in your provision. Lord, it is hard to trust in you when we can meet our own needs. But I pray that we would open our eyes to see that everything that we have in times of struggle and times of prosperity comes from you and that you have walked with us every step of the way and you're not about to forsake us now. May we put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.